0: It's the soundtrack of Australia, as volunteers fed hungry voters and their children, school bands entertained them. Carabar High in Queenbean had the second best barbecue in the country. Well, it's clearly the highlight of an election uh, campaign. I mean, it's a reason to be here. Living up to his
1: competitive reputation, Tony Abbott was the first major leader to cast a vote, arriving at his local surfing club with his family.
0: This is The Conversation's Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. Every three or four years, we turn up to our local school halls, scout clubs, and other community spaces to cast our votes in state, federal, and local council elections. We pass volunteers handing out how-to-vote cards, we smell the sausage sizzles, and we eye off some delicious-looking bakers at some of the cake stalls. Election days are like festivals of democracy, and there's good cause for celebration, because the right to have a direct say in how we're governed was hard won. And unlike many other countries, Our electoral rights are well protected, and the transitioning of power is largely peaceful. A short time ago, I telephoned Tony Abbott to concede defeat at these national elections. I can inform you that the government of Australia has changed for just the seventh time. When we think about preserving or maybe even enhancing our democracy, we most readily think about measures to prevent corruption or improve access to voting. But my guest today wants us to also take more seriously the cultural and communal dimension to elections. As he argues, that can have implications for a whole range of issues, from where we should vote, who should be able to vote, and how we vote. For instance, whether we should be able to vote electronically Professor Graham Orr is my guest, and he's based at the University of Queensland's School of Law. He's the author of The Law of Politics, and most recently, Ritual and Rhythm in Electoral Systems. Elections are the largest single peacetime activity that
1: any country goes through, and in fact it's a way of drawing together the country, what you might call the polity, the people. Uh, especially in a secular society, nothing else draws people together and particularly in Australia where we have compulsory voting and traditionally we vote at schools, uh, local halls and so on. So it is a giant communal event. The everyday aspects of, of voting in elections, like where do we vote and on what day, not the big picture thing about you know, every four or three years we come together. Even in those little interstices of the practice of electoral democracy we see different symbolised, expressed values and different experiential, ritual,
0: rhythmical elements. According to Graham, there's a lot that we can learn about what we value and privilege as a society by looking at the way that we run our elections and the laws that we create to police that process some laws are
1: clearly designed to have expressive value. So we have the Anzac Day Act, which you know, sets up a whole lot of uh, rules, but also the symbolics of Anzac Day. My claim is that almost all law, and especially most public law, has this expressive element. And I'm not the first person to make that claim, but I've applied it by looking at elections. This isn't just about the law, it's about the whole institution of electoral democracy, institutions like political parties, uh, the electoral commission, how they run things. One very obvious example is polling day.
0: Well polling stations have become much more than a place to cast your vote, with families and charities gathering for sausage sizzles and fundraisers at voting booths across Australia.
1: We have a single day for polling in this country, not 30 days like India, not like some countries where you vote electronically online or you have all postal ballots. So obviously the fact of gathering together physically is something of an expression. And the media knows this because they are down at the polling stations literally filming um, the interactions between activists, MPs, candidates and electors. Julia Gillard resumed her campaign by voting in her Victorian electorate of Laylaw. (laughs) Gillard. Now, if you don't find me on that roll, going to be a big problem. Living up to his competitive reputation, Tony Abbott was the first major leader to cast a vote, arriving at his local surfing club with his family. It's not written in law, but overwhelmingly the electoral commissions try and get public forums like schools and school halls. If they can't get that, they'll get church halls. And obviously, if you vote in a church hall, that's a slightly different experience, especially if you're a non-believer. The focus on schools, I think, is is fascinating. It goes back over a century. We are compelled to turn out to vote in Australia. Not to vote, but to turn out to vote. We are compelled to be educated until age 15, but in reality, most people 17 or 18, at schools. Schools, in theory at least, are meant to be where you come of age as, not just physically, not just a holding station for people to wait around until their voices break and their hormones kick in, but to be schooled as citizens. You turn 17 or 18, you leave school, you come back with this new thing, the right to vote, the franchise. This act of the community gathering at local school halls, particularly families coming down to vote, sends out and expresses a whole lot of things, not just about our approach to electoral democracy, but our idea of
0: ourself as society. In Australia, we're used to voting at school halls and only ever on the weekends. But in many other countries, that's not the case. And Graham says that that can make the act of voting a very different experience. In the United States, as well as the United Kingdom, they vote on weekdays, which is, I think, very problematic for
1: the equality and participation of turnout. But obviously they can't get school halls so easily. So what many counties in the United States do is they just get whatever is the cheapest, most convenient public space, and that might be a mall, a shopping mall. What does that express or say about American electoral democracy, that you can go and vote at a place that's otherwise a temple of commerce rather than a temple of citizenship? Under their electoral laws, it's every little local city or county that has to make its own arrangements, and some of them are very poor, especially in the lower socioeconomic, Hispanic, African-American community. So they just get the cheapest place they can get. In in, in some cases, they will get a, a government office. Now, voting in a government office is a bit more of an austere or less communal experience than voting at a school. For instance, if, if you've had a criminal history uh, and you having to go and vote at the local
0: courthouse, <laughs> that is quite a different thing from going back to a school. It's not just where we vote that has meaning in the electoral process. Who gets to vote is also crucial. Sometimes we go to great lengths to ensure that people who have the right to vote can actually exercise that right, including Australians in some of the farthest reaches of the globe.
1: It's a dozens of sections in the Australian Electoral Act, Commonwealth Electoral Act, but even in the New South Wales Electoral Act, you know, to ensure that the few hundred scientists at any one time who might be stationed down in Antarctica or on the Antares ship can vote and have their vote in and counted on the day. Obviously, there are issues of secrecy and they traditionally use faxes. And so the whole little trivia that has to occur to ensure that they can vote at the same time as everyone else. But it's almost a wonderful way of expressing something that, you can go right back in Australian history to the early 1900s, and Professor Marian Sawyer has written quite a bit about this. The idea was uh, that every vote was sacred in a way, uh, and you know, compulsory enrolment and compulsory turnout was not just to make life easier for the parties; it was something about our idea of inclusivity, uh, as a community, so there's certainly an expressive value there, and obviously if we vote in different ways technologically, you know, Antarctic staff presumably should soon be able to have a secret ballot through an e-voting or i-voting system.
0: While we should congratulate ourselves on the great efforts we sometimes go to to ensure people can vote today, let's not forget that until quite recently, large numbers of people were excluded from participating, including women and Indigenous Australians.
1: Indigenous people did not get the national vote as a whole until 1962. That says a certain thing about, something about the fact that we were quite egalitarian towards uh, men and women of the empire early on, but took a long time before we came to see Indigenous people as part of this inclusive festival ritual that was election day, both as an experiential thing, but also as uh, votes can count. They can. It's a way of recalling your local member of parliament. And if we are going to show the white people of this country that we are law-abiding people, then we will act according to the law. If it is a bad law, then let us change the
0: law. These days, elections are highly mechanised and they're highly regulated. There are rules about how close to the polling stations candidates can stand and there's even rules about what sort of pencils you can use in the ballot box in the past though the idea of elections as festivals was much more literal the whole theater of politics particularly the way it's reported and practiced
1: these days has uh, an important history behind it and it seems to me the media is on top of this and ordinary people feel it in the way they talk about the sausage sizzle at their local school or the way they grumble about having to queue to vote. But academics, bureaucrats, lawmakers have almost routinely ignored this element of it, the experiential element of electoral democracy. And we just talk in fairly traditional terms about elections as either free and fair, you know, integrity of elections. Or we talk about sort of highfalutin liberal values like government by the people, for the people, uh, political freedom and equality which again are important values to quest for but the reality is you know your vote doesn't make much difference on election day but the experience you have of voting as an individual and as a communal whole I think is fascinating going back to the uh, 18th century in the United Kingdom they voted over several days you literally people had to come up from the country to their local town there was a whole lot of bribery that went on in terms of offering people trips as well as food and booze. It was part of a real festival, almost like a harvest festival. Move forward into the ninth century, we got this model where you voted on a single day uh, and lots of rules and regulations to sort of limit what can happen on that day to get away from the old fashioned communal reciprocal bribery. We lost some of that festival element.
0: Like many festivals, alcohol has always been involved in elections to some extent. These days, it may simply be victors and vanquished, having a glass or two, to celebrate or drown their sorrows. But in the past, a much more unscrupulous practice was quite common. It was called treating. Treating is
1: a historical thing that's largely done away with now because most people can afford to buy their own booze. (laughs) In the past, treating was literally a kind of roll-out-the-barrel as part of the whole festival of voting, which sometimes took place over a couple of days. Australia, in the early days, uh, you know, voting sometimes had to occur at public houses because there was no other public place to vote in in small towns. We now have a series of laws uh, trying to restrict the use of alcohol in elections. Um, sometimes political parties sail close to the wind, but usually it's simply providing wine and cheese Occasionally, they have race days where they'll, you know, come and meet the candidate and there will literally be huge amounts of alcohol. But that's more like a customary aspect of the culture in Australia rather than trying to influence people by getting them drunk.
0: As you probably know, Australia is unusual for having compulsory voting. Besides a number of Latin American countries, it hasn't really caught on elsewhere. But one practice we pioneered has become conventional for elections all around the world.
1: The secret ballot, which Australia was at the forefront of developing a form of it, strange to our ears, it was a site of incredible contestation, particularly between often conservatives, a gentleman in politics who thought that it was unmanly, feminine, Catholic to vote in secret, Uh, and Les A. Murray. I think he's a Catholic as well, and one of our great poets, he wrote a famous poem called um, My Ancestress and the Secret Ballad, where he described the secret ballot as a closet of prayer. So it was a very important breakthrough towards ensuring that each individual elector could express their conscience and not be subject to intimidation by their employer or their husband or their whoever, their briberous candidate.
0: Perhaps it's also a reflection of our egalitarian culture that until recently the concept of the festival lingered right up to and including the tallying of the votes in australia we used to have a national tally room in canberra where people literally could
1: go and share the floor with bob Hawke claiming uh, his victory in 1983 and malcolm fraser in tears as he conceded defeat in 1983. we got rid of that partly to save money and partly because the media and the parties were just sitting in Sydney, Melbourne and so on. But there wasn't that kind of same focus that you had with a physical national tally room. And as things disappear behind electronic and broadcast media barriers, you lose some of that kind of expressive and ritual aspect of politicians, at least for the period of the election, equal to us and in a way inferior to us because they're having to beg us for our support. We have expunged a lot of the colour from old-fashioned polling days that were more corrupt more customary more communal and what we need to do is think again about retaining some of the color of election day a year or so ago the liberal national party in queensland were proposing to ban canvassing. That is, all the people who stand around polling booths handing out material, putting up colourful banners and so on. They were going to ban all that, ostensibly be, partly because there'd been some argy-bargy and the Premier's wife had been pushed and shoved uh, in a by-election. I suspect they also just wanted to stop the opposition parties handing out how-to-vote cards. <laughs> what I said at the time was stop. We need to think about this. If we end up just turning elections into a series of postal ballots or online voting with none of the physical aspects. We not only take away from the joy and the experience that many activists feel of being part of it, or the sausage sizzles that many community groups and schools feel part of, but we end up totally sanitising elections and making them even less relevant to future generations.
0: Here and overseas more convenient forms of voting, like postal voting and electronic voting, are becoming increasingly popular. But Graham Moore argues that we have to be careful about following that path, because it could ultimately lead to a further hollowing out of our democracy. The concern I have about convenience voting,
1: and I'm talking in Australia, not the United States, where of course it's in some communities it's really important to have early voting, because otherwise you have huge queues in poor uh, suburban precincts. Um, It's important to have early voting in the United States simply to give equal opportunity to vote and turn out. But in Australia, most people use convenience voting literally as a sort of lifestyle convenience choice. Uh, And now we're having laws in place, like in Queensland, where anyone can apply for a postal vote. Very odd thing to be doing in the 21st century when Australia Post may soon close down the normal mail service to be going back to postal voting. But we're also increasingly having people voting early, and they tend to be people who already know which way they're going to vote now I'm not I don't want to say that they shouldn't be able to have that option but I'm saying we need to think about this broader question of the ritual of election day what's being lost if 30 to 40 percent of the population increasingly are voting early lost in terms of the campaign how do the parties you know get across to people who may vote early if there's late breaking news But also this idea that I've been describing of, you know, the community getting together physically and standing together. This may sound, you know, kind of old-fashioned, when a lot of younger people think, why can't I just vote on my iPhone from wherever, whenever? My argument would be, at a minimum, we have to think about what is the ritual, experiential element of something as a singular transaction as voting on a phone as if you were doing a Vox Pop for a Survivor TV show versus this idea of having one day every three or four years where the community, national, state, local level comes together.
0: Although voting in Australia is said to be compulsory, what's actually compulsory is showing up. Invalid votes have a long history as a form of political expression and protest. And maybe that's not such a bad thing.
1: It's interesting, increasingly, uh, often younger people are taking photos of their ballot paper, sometimes where they've written obscenities or drawn... There's one classic example of an artist who draw uh, the, the see-no-evil, hear-no-evil, speak-no-evil monkeys on her Senate ballot paper, and it must have taken her hours to do it, probably a postal ballot, and then that she put that on her Facebook page. Some of those aspects, opening up mechanisms for expression, I think are fine. I, you know, it, it may affect the secrecy of the ballot, but we're not in the days where we're worrying about um, people being bribed and the secrecy of the ballot as a way of ensuring that bribes could not be enforced. When you have electronic forms of voting, you could literally try and force everyone to vote validly. So far in the experiments we've done in Australia with electronic voting in in the ACT, they've allowed people, they've given them a warning, do you really want to vote invalidly and then people can say yes obviously you need in a compulsory turnout system to allow people you literally cannot force people to have a preference but you can force or require them to be part of the ritual and to consider electoral politics so as to people you know doodling on a screen well those people who scrutinise at elections get a bit of a kick out of witty Twitter-like and abusive comments that are written on the paper ballots. It would be a loss for them if that was no longer possible in some
0: brave new world. As the inexorable march of technology gathers pace, it seems almost inevitable that we'll soon be voting electronically. It does seem pretty archaic that we still use pencil and paper. But how would electronic voting change election night?
1: Through electronic voting, the results could be known instantly. They would be downloaded onto Anthony Green's supercomputer and, in theory, election night parties would have a lot less of the tension and suspense. I'm actually going to explain why I think we can probably call this election at the moment. If I bring up our state swings, I'll show you what's occurring from state to state. That would completely and radically change the aspect of election night which is the unfolding unfurling the watching of candidates and mps in their backyards as they go through the suspense and tension of whether they're going to be elected or not and if you look at a country like the united kingdom it's, it's a huge aspect of their electoral ritual cities like sunderland race to be the first to declare their elections under first-past-the-post voting, often at 1am in the morning. Um, so people sit up all night, political junkies but others, to get the result out. And you might think they race to count the vote, the paper ballots in England. That's not very good for integrity, but it's all part of um, their uh, expression of their local identity. And then at 1am in the morning, the candidates and the MPs elected in those particular seats are virtually required to be at the declaration of the poll, and that gets filmed. And it's a great level. You know, you have the Prime Minister... Of the united kingdom having to appear at the declaration of his or her poll sometimes besides the monster raving loony candidate and and that's part of the physical leveling and unfurling of electoral democracy that uh you know i think we could be at risk of voting if we don't think about these themes when we change rules and institutions
0: over the past decade or so a major trend in western democracies the world over has been increasing distrust of our elected officials and disengagement from politics in general, particularly among young people. So going forward, how can we maintain or resurrect the vibrancy of our electoral democracy?
1: That's the, you know, $64 million question now, I guess. I mean, we are confronting this problem of declining turnout, of younger people having almost as much faith in say a Chinese single party or 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 non electoral democracy than they have in western style electoral democracy we've got the uh, social media that in many ways does scandalize trivialize turn debates into um, who can put whoever else down better they're real questions for deliberation I guess if you are talking about for the ritual element I want to ask a series of questions about losing or further diluting polling day as a centerpiece um, of our national and state and local lives. I want to ask these questions about ensuring that we keep election night as a, as a sort of special period of the unfolding of this of this finale of the season of, of politics. But I, I don't have a template. And I'm not saying that there's a single simple thing you can do. You've got to look at each culture um, differently because it's just going to be different in the United States where they vote on a Tuesday, but they spend billions of dollars on campaigns because of their razzmatazz and their First Amendment. So my book is partly looking at several different countries, common law jurisdictions and influences from elsewhere, but it's not meant to be a a law reform template. If nothing else, you know, the High Court would probably say there are other values that will ordinarily trump ritual experience, values like uh, accessibility, participation, political equality, integrity. But what I'm saying is we need to also include in that mix the idea of the experience of electoral democracy.
0: Thank you for listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. If you'd like to learn more about some of the ideas we've discussed today, Professor Graham Orr's book, Ritual and Rhythm in Electoral Systems, is out now. And a final reminder you can subscribe to the Speaking With podcast on iTunes or on TuneIn Radio.